we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Today, the Federal Reserve had its last official meeting of the year. And as was widely expected, the Federal Reserve was unanimous in their decision not to cut interest rates. They didn't even consider hiking interest rates, but they decided not to cut them any further for now. And so they're on a pause. Uh, The short-term rates are now 1.5%, right? The target is 1.5 to 1.75. And the idea is that the Fed is going to remain there for some time. Now, I don't really think it's going to be that long uh, before they they cut rates. You know, I was on uh, Fox Business earlier today, uh, with Liz Clayman and Liz asked me when I thought they were going to cut rates in, in, in 2020. And I said, look, I don't know the exact meeting that they're going to choose to do it. I think a lot of it depends on what's happening with the stock market. As soon as the stock market starts to sell off, if that's what happens, I think that could motivate the Fed uh, for the next rate cut. And maybe if we get enough bad economic data Uh, that the Fed might move for that reason. But whatever the reason is going to be, whatever the excuse they're going to make up, the Fed is not done cutting. And I don't think they're going to be paused until 2021 or later, as a lot of people seem to believe. I think the Fed is going to be back in the rate-cutting business uh, much sooner than that. Of course, the quantitative easing business, that's not going to stop, right? They're going to continue to expand their balance sheet and print money uh, so that they can 
prop up the bond market and prop up the stock market and prop up the government. So that is going to continue. In fact, we got the official budget deficit released, uh, I guess, about the same time as we got the Fed decision. The November deficit, $209 billion. Uh, We've now got two uh, uh, months into this fiscal year, and the deficits are running much higher uh, than they were a year earlier. So even though the economy is supposedly getting better, the deficits are getting bigger, right? In, In a genuinely growing economy, one that was producing more revenues for the government because of higher taxes collected in a vibrant economy and less spending because of the social safety nets, you would expect the deficits to be coming down. Instead, they are going up. And of course, if deficits are going up now, when the economy is supposedly expanding, when according to Trump, it's the greatest economy in history, imagine what's going to happen to those deficits when uh, the economy moves into recession, which, of course, it is going to do eventually. Another recession is inevitable, even if you don't believe it's right around the corner. One is going to come. But, you know, as is typical, right, or now every time the Fed has a meeting, there is now a press conference. And that is where the real action is now, because there was nothing unexpected in their official statement. In fact, I don't even know if any words actually changed from the previous statement. So the the statement itself was a non-event. I mean, the markets had, you know, were unanimous that the Fed was going to do nothing. Uh, and so we ended up with three rate cuts for 2019. Again, the opposite of what everybody expected. Everybody was looking for either three or four rate hikes. And so we got the opposite of that in 2019. Of course, I was alone, really, in my prediction that the Fed would cut rates this year. And I believe that they're going to cut rates again next year. And I think there's a few people that believe that, but I think the conventional wisdom may be that they don't cut at all. But we'll see. But anyway, the real action was in the uh, Q&A, which follows the opening statement at the uh, Powell press conference. And I thought it was very ironic, too, that he began the uh, the conference by paying some tribute to Paul Volcker, who just passed away, I think, even yesterday or the day before. But Paul Volcker, if you don't know who he was, he was the Fed chairman uh, initially under uh, Jimmy Carter, but under uh, Ronald Reagan, who is credited for slaying the inflation dragon, for presiding over a Fed that allowed short-term interest rates to rise all the way to 20%. He took a lot of heat, a lot of flack from uh, government, not from Ronald Reagan, by the way. Unlike uh, Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan stood by Paul Volcker, right? He was his ally, and he never criticized uh, Volcker for high interest rates when everybody else was criticizing him, uh, from Main Street to Wall Street to, uh, you know, uh, the Capitol. Uh, but uh, Reagan stood by his Fed chairman. And, uh, you know, Volcker now, in hindsight, a lot of people have a lot of respect for Paul Volcker. And again, you know, I think he was probably or is definitely the last decent Fed chairman. You know, I wish he would have been a little bit more critical of uh, his predecessors, but there's some kind of unwritten rule among Fed chairmen that you never speak ill about anybody who has the job after you. But I wish he had, because I'm sure he had some ill will. He had some feelings that uh, we were making mistakes and he could have been more vocal in his criticism. But anyway, I thought it was ironic because uh, in his tribute to uh, Paul Volcker, 
uh, Powell basically said, yes, he's, he slayed the inflation. He got rid of the inflation problem that we're all benefiting from now. But of course, you know, as we are uh, burying Paul Volcker, Powell is now helping to resurrect the high inflation, right? And so we're bringing that back to life now that Paul Volcker uh, has passed away. So maybe he will rest in peace unless he's going to end up rolling around in his grave based on all the inflation that is going to be ravaging the country. But that inflation is coming back to life in a big, big way. In fact, this press conference probably focused more on inflation than any prior conference. I mean, it always comes up. But this one, the Fed spent a lot of time on inflation and mainly the absence of inflation and the fact that there's not enough inflation and the fact that we need more inflation, which is, of course, the opposite of what the Fed should be doing. The Fed should be saying, hey, we don't have a lot of inflation. That's great. And we're going to make sure it stays that way. You know, we're going to try to take the inflation we have and, and make it even lower, right? Because the mandate is stable prices. Stable means the prices don't go up. They remain stable, right? That's 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 what it's supposed to be. But all the discussion was about the fact that we didn't have enough inflation. Again, there's some more irony here, too, because we actually got the official inflation numbers that came out early this morning, so well before this conference. And the the numbers for November were actually up a little bit more than expected for the month. And year over year, headline inflation is up 2.1%. Well, 2.1 is greater than 1. And the core which you know doesn't count food and energy, that number is up 2.3% year over year. So we have inflation as measured by both the core and the headline CPI that is running above the Fed's 2% target. But of course, they don't even have a 2% target now because now they have a symmetrical 2% target, which means they want inflation to be above 2%. And in fact, as I said on an earlier podcast, the Fed has already come out and said that it wants to have higher inflation in the future to make up for not enough inflation in the past. And uh, Powell went on to explain that. He talked about the dangers of inflation being too low. In fact, he said that one of the dangers of inflation being too low, and again, every time the someone from the Fed says inflation being too low, just in your mind, substitute the cost of living going up. So what he's really saying is there is a problem if the cost of living doesn't go up enough, the cost of living going up too slowly, right? Because then it really hits you, the absurdity of what they're expecting us to swallow. But of course, Wall Street swallows it, right? I mean, you know, I did this uh, earlier podcast today, a special podcast, which I recommend everybody listen on this Trayvon Martin hoax. But, you know, in a way, what the public believed the lies that the public believed and how easily they believed them, that's very similar here. The way Wall Street believes what the Federal Reserve is saying, this stuff is a bunch of nonsense. People should you know, see through this and start to question the irrationality of what the Fed is saying to try to see through it to their real agenda. Because the Federal Reserve knows that inflation is bad. The Federal Reserve knows that the cost of living going up is a bad thing. The Federal Reserve, even though it's constantly saying it wants more inflation, the last thing it really wants is more inflation, at least you know, through the CPI. 
because the last thing the Fed wants to do is to fight inflation. So the Fed is hoping that inflation doesn't go up. It acts like it's disappointed that the CPI isn't high enough. I mean, it's breathing a sigh of relief. We've already created all this inflation. We pr- printed all this money. And look how fortunate we are that you know the public still isn't aware of what we're doing because the CPI still isn't reflecting all this inflation. But what Powell was saying is one of the reasons why the um, we can't have inflation being too low is because that means inflation expectations will go even lower, right? People will expect even lower inflation than they expect now. So not only will that be bad, although why you can't, there is no explanation for why it would be bad, but in addition to it being bad, simply because consumer prices weren't rising enough, that if inflation expectations went down, Volcker said then interest rates would come down. So wait a minute, but I thought they liked low interest rates. But no, what Powell said is that if interest rates are lower because of lower inflation premiums being built into the yield curve, right, if we get lower interest rates now, well, in the future, if the Fed wants to stimulate the economy, it won't have as much stimulus to give because it won't have enough room to lower interest rates. So think about the absurdity of that. I mean, we need higher interest rates now so that we can have lower interest rates in the future. But in the meantime, the Fed has been lowering rates. If the Fed wants higher interest rates, so raise rates. What's stopping them? I mean, in fact, the interest rates we have now at 1.5% is already lower than the inflation rate. So if inflation expectations went down, I mean, how much lower could interest rates actually go? They couldn't really go any lower than here because the only reason they're this low is because the Fed is artificially manipulating them. Interest rates should be a lot higher. They're not. But to say that we need to have extra inflation so that Americans could pay higher interest rates when they borrow money, right, so that the Fed can micromanage the economy in the event that we have a recession down the line, which, of course, we're going to have. But, of course, the Fed creates the recessions, right? It lights the fires that it then wants to take credit for putting out. But the whole idea uh, makes no sense whatsoever, yet everybody at that press conference just accepts it. They eat this stuff up. But then he also talked a lot about why the Fed doesn't expect inflation to rise above 2%, even though, you know, we have this strong economy and even though we have uh, low unemployment and even though we have some wage growth, he says that the, you know, the relationships that existed in the past between inflation and and, and these other uh, things that those relationships are no longer valid. And so we don't have to worry about low unemployment causing inflation or strong economic growth causing inflation. And, you know, he's half right, but for the wrong reasons. You see, inflation was never caused by economic growth. Inflation was never caused by low unemployment. Inflation was never caused by rising wages. I mean, wages themselves are prices. It's the price of labor. And, you know, Prices don't go up because prices are going up. That's not why we have inflation. The Federal Reserve always created the inflation. The Keynesians who believed that inflation was a byproduct of economic growth and employment and there was some kind of trade-off with the Phillips curves, these guys were all wrong. The Fed created inflation in the past, and the Fed is creating inflation now. So what has changed, right? What Powell is missing is the lag. That's what's changed, the lag, the period of time between the creation of 
inflation by the Fed, which is creating money, printing money, expanding the money supply, quantitative easing. However, the Fed is injecting new money into the economy. The lag between that and consumer prices going up, that lag is longer than it has been in the past. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Of course, one being that the the indexes are not as honest as they used to be. And so the true uh, impact, right, the extent to which consumer prices are actually rising is not really being captured fully in the CPI. And, and, And by the way, too, Powell is saying that the CPI that we're all looking at, that he wants, you know, to get to 2% isn't even the official CPI. It's another measure that the Fed likes, and that one is currently at like 1.7, 1.8. So by the time that measure gets high enough for uh, Powell, I wonder how high the official CPI will be. And of course, that means actual consumer prices are rising much faster. But of course, all of the inflation is not moving into consumer prices yet. Right? A lot of it is in the stock market. It's in financial assets. It's in real estate. It's in bonds. It's in, it's in a lot of things. And a lot of the inflation has been exported and foreigners are holding on to it. Right? Our money has gone into uh, foreign accounts and we have a huge trade deficit. So the paper goes out, the real things comes in, and that keeps a temporary lid on consumer prices. But these are all temporary factors uh, that are going to wear off. And you don't want to get lulled into a false sense of confidence, which is exactly what's happened by uh, Powell. Since we haven't seen a bigger impact on consumer prices of the inflationary monetary policy that not only Powell has pursued, but his predecessors, well, he just thinks it's going to go on indefinitely. But he is wrong. And in fact, he's so confident, right, that inflation is not going to become a problem. Right? and that the Fed's current monetary policy isn't stoking the inflation fires, that what he also told everybody at this press conference, and of course everybody listening uh, on television, including myself, uh, what he said is that before the Fed takes any action on reining in inflation, and by that they mean rate hikes, right? that would be prompted by higher inflation, that he needs to see a substantial pickup in inflation. And it needs to be sustainable. And, you know, I've already commented on that, and he reiterated that point. Now, he hasn't come right out and said, well, how high would that price have to go? I mean, what level on prices would you say was a a big enough rise that, you know, the Fed would be concerned? And for how long would you have to see that level of inflation sustained before you would take action because you didn't think it was a fluke, right? You thought it was sustainable. They haven't come out and said that because, of course, they can't because there is no number because it doesn't really matter. What the markets haven't figured out yet, but what they will figure out is there is no level of inflation that would prompt the Fed to act because they can't. And in fact, the longer they wait, the less likely it is that they will act. The old uh, uh, proverb or adage or saying, whatever, is, you know, you never want to let the inflation genie out of the bottle, right? I've, I've talked about that. Why is that? Because once the genie is out of the bottle, putting it back in is very difficult. So the idea behind central bankers is preemptive. If you start to see that inflation may rear its ugly head, well, chop it off before that happens, right? Act preemptively. Because even if you're wrong and you preempt an inflation threat that's not there, that's better than missing an inflation threat that is there because it's so difficult to do something about it, especially now, 
right? Because think about what are the Fed's tools for fighting inflation? Well, it's raising interest rates, right? That's pretty much it. And shrinking its balance sheet. So it can do quantitative tightening, right? Open market operations. It can shrink the money supply and it can raise interest rates, right? Well, obviously, the more debt an economy has, the more vulnerable it is to that type of medicine, right? And, and so the longer you just ignore an inflation threat, the bigger you allow it to be before you decide to fight it, the higher you're going to have to raise interest rates, right? Because if Powell, you know, waits until inflation is 3% or 4% and then stays there for six months or a year, and then it becomes 5 or 6%, who knows? And then he says, okay, I guess we have an inflation problem. Let's do something about it. What are they going to do about it? There's nothing they can do about it. Because if they were to raise interest rates high enough to combat that type of inflation, all hell would break loose. Everything would implode. I mean, it, I mean, it would make uh, 2008, that financial crisis, I mean, let me look like nothing. I mean, we would experience an economic implosion uh, unlike we've never seen before. And of course, you know, people might think, well, I guess that economic collapse, that would put an end to the inflation. No, not necessarily. Not if the dollar is collapsing too, which is exactly what I think is going to happen. In fact, I don't think the Fed is going to fight inflation until we have a dollar crisis and until they're fighting the prospects of hyperinflation. That's what's going to ultimately bring the Fed to the inflation flighting table uh, if it, you know, is too late to actually do anything about it. In fact, when you, you know, I talk about 4% inflation, they actually were talking about 4% inflation. There was in the Q&A, um, Powell was asked about would the Fed actually move the official inflation target up? Like, why not just move it up right from 2% to uh, to 4%? And, and so in that discussion, I mean, Powell didn't say 4%. That'd be crazy. That'd be a horrible idea. He didn't completely throw cold water on it. But, you know, he basically had two objections to it. His first one was that, well, I don't know that the markets would take that seriously. I mean, we wouldn't have much credibility because we've had this 2% target for a long time and we haven't been able to reach it. Uh, so, you know, why would the market believe we'd be any more successful at a 4% target. So he wasn't actually saying that it was bad. He was just saying that he didn't know that the Fed could actually achieve that, which of course they could. I mean, if the Fed really wanted, they could just start printing even more money. I mean, is it right? I mean, they could just, the one thing the Fed can create is inflation. And again, they're, they're trying not to overdo it, right? They're hoping that that inflation genie doesn't come out of the you know bottle in a measurable way because that would create a much worse crisis uh, than, than anything we've experienced before. Uh, but he didn't really say, oh, that's a crazy, stupid, idiotic idea, which it is. <laughs> but he said, look, you know, I don't know that we could pull it off because I don't know that anybody would believe that we would actually achieve that lofty goal, right? Hey, if 2% is good, then, then 4% must be better. But then the one negative thing he did say, kind of, he said also he wasn't sure if a 4% target was within their mandate, right? Because he said that our mandate is not 2%. He said our mandate is price stability. And so he told the guy who was asking him the question that he wasn't sure if 4% annual inflation would be considered stable prices. Now, of course, it's not stable prices. It's prices going up 4% a year. But the same thing could be said about 2%, right? 
2% increasing prices every year. That's not stable either. Stable prices don't go up 2% a year. They remain stable. So the Fed has already violated its mandate by redefining stability as prices that go up 2% a year. So if the Fed could redefine its mandate and, and change it to 2%, well, then it could change it to 4%, right? It could do whatever it wants because it is redefining the terms. Congress hasn't redefined anything. The Fed has. Now, maybe the Fed can try to claim, well, if we're only going up 2% a year, well, that's still kind of stable. No, it's not. Not if you go up 2% year after year after year after year. I mean, if you have some years where you go up 2%, but then you have other years where you only go up 1% or you go down 1%, if, if 2% is kind of like a ceiling so that the worst you get is 2% in any given year, well, then maybe you can have something that that, that, that is resembles stability. But if you're saying we need 2% at a minimum, and if we don't get 2% in one year, we'll make sure we get more than that in the next year, then you've got ever escalating prices. I mean, you do not have stable prices. You have prices that are rising every single year. And that is not the Fed's mandate. The Fed's mandate is not to make sure that prices go up. It's to make sure that prices remain stable. And he couldn't even see the irony of uh, explaining that, well, prices going up by 4% a year is instability, but by going up by 2% a year, yeah, that's stability. Neither represents stability. Now, you know, initially after we got the, you know, the statement released, I mean, there were minimal, again, market reactions. I think gold ticked down a couple of bucks. It had been up 4 or $5 and, and then, you know, sold off to maybe only up a buck or two. But what caused gold to rally and the dollar to sell off were the comments that uh, Powell made about inflation and about the Fed's tolerance to allow inflation to get a lot worse before it even considers doing anything about it. And so the reaction was pretty immediate. You saw a drop in the dollar. In fact, the dollar index closed uh, 97 spot 12. I mean, it's about as low as it's been. You know, it's still up on the year, though. Crazy as that is, the dollar index ended last year uh, at, at 96 spot one, and now it's 97 spot one. So despite three unexpected rate cuts and a return to quantitative easing, we haven't seen a drop in the dollar. Now, that doesn't mean the drop in the dollar isn't coming. It is coming, and it's going to be even bigger uh, than just about anybody expects, even the biggest dollar bears. Uh, not that there's that many dollar bears out there, but there's a few. Uh, but we're going to have a much bigger drop. But what the Fed said today is definitely bearish for the dollar. It is bullish for gold, right, because we're going to allow inflation to get worse. Gold is an inflation hedge, and so it makes sense that gold rallied about 10 bucks. I think the high it got was up about maybe 12 or 13. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, just a, an enormous move up. Silver was up, I don't know, about 12 cents or something like that. Uh, the stocks actually did really well. Uh, the, the GDX uh, senior miners was up a little over 2%, and the GDXJ, the juniors, were up a little more than 3%. So a, a, a good day in the mining sector. The only uh, market that didn't make sense was the bond market. The bond market caught a bit of a bid, and obviously at, at face value, okay, so the Fed is going to be slower to raise rates. Uh, it's going to tolerate more inflation, so the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, uh, buy bonds because the Fed is not going to be hiking rates because rate hikes are supposedly uh, bearish for bonds. So the lack of the hikes would be bullish. But that's not true. See, if you're talking about a 30-year Treasury and you have a Federal Reserve that's saying we are going to allow inflation to be much higher uh, before we do anything about it. And of course, 
by allowing inflation to get much higher, the odds that they actually can do anything about it diminish dramatically because it would be so much more difficult to try. And if they can't even try now, how would they try then when the inflation is even higher and the economy is even more leveraged thanks to all the cheap money that is encouraging all the excess uh, leverage? So if we're going to have a lot more inflation, that's bearish for bonds, right? The worst thing that can happen if you're owning a 30-year bond if you're going to hold that bond to maturity, what destroys the most value is inflation, right? Because your money, even if you have 2% inflation every year, 30 years, that's a lot of inflation. That's a lot of erosion of purchasing power. And if it ends up being much more than that, which it probably will, uh, then you lose even more purchasing power. So bonds should be going down. And in fact, they would be going down if actual investors were buying them. But they're not. This is speculators. Uh, these are funds buying. I mean, who knows where the buying is coming from? But this is all artificial demand. People should be selling into this bond rally, and they should be buying gold. I mean, gold has barely begun the move. That is the real uh, inflation hedge. Bonds are not a hedge. Bonds get destroyed by inflation. In fact, if you have bonds, one of the things you could do is buy gold to hedge your bond portfolio. In fact, earlier today, before uh, the Fed made its move uh, and before the press conference, I was watching an interview on CNBC with Jeff Gunlock. And again, of all the people that they have on CNBC, by far, he's the best guy, right? He's the only guy on CNBC really worth listening to because they won't let me on. Right. But they but they you know, they can't keep uh, Jeff Gunlock off. I mean, they you know, I mean, they, you know, he, he threatened not to go on one time and they were, you know, they went crazy based on something uh, negative that that Kramer said about him. So they had to apologize. Kramer had to apologize because they really want Gunlock on because he's a major, major guy. Um, and, you know, pretty much, again, pointing out a lot of the same things that I've been pointing out uh, with the same investment thesis, get out of U.S. stocks, get out of U.S. bonds, get out of the dollar, get into foreign markets, right? You know, this is what he's saying. But one of the uh, very interesting points that, that he made, and I guess I forget the name of the guy he was interviewing. And, and, and of course, the first thing he tries to do is kind of uh, diminish uh, the fear by saying, well, this is not going to happen for a long time, right? This is a while away. And, you know, Gunlock is saying, well, you know, 2021, 2022, I mean, that's not really that far away, right? He's talking about a major crisis that's coming in a couple of years. And the guys say, well, yeah, we don't have to worry about it now because it's still a year or two away. I mean, anything that's a year or two away, I mean, it's really too late. To be, you should have been worried about it a long time ago. But of course, you know, one of the risks is that, you know, we don't have two years. We don't have a year. What if everything starts to fall apart in three months or six months? It certainly could, right? I, I would prepare for it now. And in fact, Jeff is already saying, you know, get out of corporate bonds. This is what I'm uh, alluding to. He was talking about the crisis he sees coming in the corporate bond market. And of course, I see a crisis coming in all the bond markets, not just the corporate bond market, but the sovereign credit market, treasuries, municipal, right, state uh, and, and municipal bonds. I think we have a bond bubble everywhere. So this is a crisis. But one thing in particular that Gunlock was talking about was uh, corporate bonds. And he mentioned that based on the information that he's seen from you know, you know, mainstream Wall Street firms, I think it was about 35% of the corporate bonds that are currently rated as investment grade bonds should really be junk right now. 
right? But the rating agencies are being too generous and they are overrating these bonds, just like they did uh, during the mortgage uh, bubble where a lot of subprime mortgages were securitized and had investment grades, which should have been rated junk. And I was pointing that out live at the time, not Sunday morning quarterbacking it. But the same thing is happening again with the corporate bond market. A lot of bonds that should be junk are not. And because they have investment grade ratings, they are being bought uh, by entities that really shouldn't be buying them. And the problem is, what is going to happen in the next economic downturn? Because normally in an economic downturn, a lot of companies that are legitimately investment grade end up getting downgraded to junk. Because now the assumptions that were underlying these companies have changed. Their earnings aren't there or their they, their debt service payments go up. I and mean, especially in the environment I'm looking for, stagflation, where their earnings go down and their interest costs go up. This is the perfect storm for destroying uh, the bond market because not only are you going to see bonds that really deserve, I guess, technically to be investment grade, aren't you going to see a lot of those downgraded to junk, but you're going to have all the bonds that should already be junk, be junk. So the number of downgrades that we're going to get in this downturn uh, from investment grade to junk is going to blow apart any recession that we've ever seen, the, the amount of downgrades. And of course, this means that bond prices implode. This means a lot of losses are in store. And if there's losses in the bond market and interest rates are really going up, the stock market too, because if all these corporations are forced to pay much higher interest rates because the corporate bond market is collapsing, well, what happens to corporate earnings? They collapse too. So what happens to stock prices? They also collapse, right? And now the Fed, of course, has to create even more money. It has to ignore the accelerating inflation to try to prop up the markets. And then it creates even more inflation, which puts even more upward pressure on corporate bond rates. And another very uh, interesting point that Jeff made, which is, of course, 100% true, is he talked about the fact that a lot of the demand for U.S. corporate bonds is coming from abroad and for U.S. treasuries for that matter. And the reason it's coming from abroad is because uh, Europeans or Asians are trying to escape the negative yielding rates that they would earn or not earn, be punished with if they were to invest locally. So what they're doing is they're investing in the U.S. to get a positive yield. But what uh, Gunlock pointed out is they are doing this unhedged, right? They are not hedging out their currency risk. And that is a real thing because if you're a insurance company or a pension and you're in Europe and you have Euro obligations, right? But your portfolio has a bunch of US dollar denominated bonds. If the value of the dollar goes down, that is a big deal. That screws up everything you're trying to do. Normally, they would be hedging so that they would match their assets to their liabilities. But they're not doing it. They're taking a chance. They're hoping that the dollar stays the same or goes up. And you have the whole world that has made this trade that is long, low-yielding, U.S. sovereign and corporate debt unhedged. So what does that mean? Well, A, that's one of the reasons that we haven't seen a weaker dollar this year is because all the foreigners who are lending the U.S. money are not hedging their currency risk. If they were hedging their currency risk, they would have to sell U.S. dollars to do that, and that would have put downward pressure on the dollar. But because they're taking this gamble, 
right, which I think is a losing bet. They are not hedging, and therefore that selling is not taking place. And so the dollar has remained stable, despite the fact that you've seen this surge in our debt, both our trade deficits and our budget deficits. And uh, Gunlock pointed this out too. I keep saying this myself. You know, when you're asked where should interest rates be, in fact, Liz Clayman again asked me on the show today, where should rates be? I don't know where, but I know they should be much higher than they are now, right? They shouldn't be set by the Fed. They should be determined by the market. But we know from common sense and from history that when you have rising twin deficits, that if you have bigger budget deficits and bigger trade deficits, you should have higher interest rates, right? That's supply and demand. Countries that borrow a lot of money pay a higher price to do that, right? If you borrow less money then you could do it at a cheaper cost because you're a better credit risk because you don't have as much debt because your central bank is less likely to have to monetize that debt because you can actually handle it with legitimate taxation well what's going to happen here is when the dollar really does start to fall which it's going to do that is going to expose a lot of these losses in u.s uh, dollar bond portfolios that are held overseas Right. And when all of a sudden uh, these European, uh, um, you know, investors, uh, funds or, you know, insurance companies or pensions, whoever's managing these portfolios. Right. Once the losses really start to mount. And remember, if you're buying U.S. Uh, bonds and you're just getting a two or three percent coupon, I mean, you don't really have a lot to gain. Right? And if all of a sudden the dollar drops by five or 10 percent and now you're down, right, you invested in these bonds to get a two percent return, a three percent return and you're down 10 percent. What's going to happen? Right. A lot of people are going to look to get out of these positions because what if the dollar falls another 10 percent? I mean, the yield is not worth it. The upside is not worth the downside risk. So all of a sudden people are going to start to think about currency risks. They should be thinking about it now, but they're not. They'd like to hedge it, but they can't afford it. They shouldn't even be doing what they're doing, but they're doing it anyway because it's expedient for the short run. So people are doing it and they're getting away with it, just like the banks were getting away with making subprime mortgages. They got away with it until they couldn't get away with it anymore, until the whole thing imploded. Well, the same thing is going to happen. When you see a drop in the dollar, then you're going to see a rush uh, to get out of dollar-denominated bonds all around the world. And that's when these chickens are going to come home to roost because then the dollar is going to tank and then commodity prices are going to rise and U.S. consumer prices are going to rise. And all the inflation right, that um, Powell thought was buried with Volcker is going to come back to life. right? And it's going to come back to life in a big, big way. And as I said, there is nothing absolutely nothing that the Federal Reserve is going to be able to do about it until it's a complete crisis, right? Until it's hyperinflation or it's getting close to it. And then all hell is going to break loose. That is what's coming. That is what uh, I'm preparing people for. And, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, Jeff Gunlock, he doesn't, at least publicly, he's not nearly as bearish as I am. Maybe privately, he's closer to me than a lot of people think. Uh, but publicly, uh, he's bearish. But you know what? Let's say that Gunlock is right and I'm wrong, that things aren't quite as bad as I think. They're just as bad as he thinks, right? Well, even if Gunlock is right, you better pay attention to him. You better follow his investment advice, which just so happens to be exactly what I'm doing. I mean, I'm not creating portfolios that will not do very well if Gunlock is right, right? My portfolios don't require economic Armageddon to perform. They just require a lower dollar. It doesn't have to implode. It just has to go down.
And the returns that we will get in a weak dollar environment are going to dwarf anything that anybody gets in the S&P 500. And I think the returns are going to be so great, so much higher than what you can get domestically, that they are going to make up for all the years where we returned less because we had a strong dollar. We're going to get all that back and then some when we have a weak dollar. Now, of course, you know, if you're investing with me for the first time, well, you're in an even better spot because maybe, you know, you didn't have any of those lower returns because you were in the U.S. stock market entirely for the bubble. You can get out. You can avoid the popping and you can position yourself uh, with your Pacific Capital in the type of foreign portfolio with emerging markets, commodities and gold. The type of portfolio that if you 100 percent believe Jeff Gunlock, you would invest in. He's saying, get out of U.S. stocks, get out of U.S. bonds. Well, what's left? I mean, if he thinks the dollar is going to go down, where are you going to buy? If you, if, if, if you follow Gunlock, if you believe him, then my portfolios are the perfect place for you to be, right? But now let's say I'm right, right? Let's say that my more apocalyptic version is correct. Well, people following Jeff Gunlock's advice, they're not going to lose any money. They're just going to make even more, right? And so if you... If you if you follow my investment strategy and it turns out that I'm right rather than Jeff because I'm more bearish than he is and so it's an even bigger dollar collapse we have a whole economic collapse we have a crisis in the United States you know on a proportion that's much greater than what we went through in 2008 well then the profits are that much higher you know i think you know people who if you don't listen to Jeff Gunlock and Jeff Gunlock is right and you don't listen to him you're going to lose a lot of money I mean, that's just going to be the reality. And so people could listen. But if I'm right and you don't listen to Jeff or me and I end up being right, it's not just about losing a lot of money. It's losing almost all your money. And again, I don't mean that you necessarily lose your money. You lose your purchasing power, which is just as bad, right? If you still have your money, but you can't buy very much with it, that's the same thing as losing your money. And those are the risks. Either you lose your money or your money loses your purchasing power. It's just that if... I'm right, you end up losing a lot more than if Jeff's right. But you lose either way. And of course, if you're talking about it from the perspective of profits, if Jeff is right, you profit. If I'm right, you profit even more. Right? The only way you lose is if we're both wrong. And I think the odds of that are pretty minimal to zero. <music>